0: Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. On today's episode of History's Hook, we are going to look at the extraordinary life of a man who has found great success as a career military man. Major General William Hickman spent 36 years serving his country. Born and raised in Murray County, General Hickman attended local schools before attending Vanderbilt University. As an ROTC student there, upon graduation, he was commissioned into the Army as a second lieutenant in 1983. Over the next three decades, he rose through the ranks, holding various field and staff commands, including company, battalion, and brigade commands with the 101st Airborne Division. Between 2003 and 2008, General Hickman served three tours of duty in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Serving in over 30 countries, he joined the Central Command Staff as military assistant to General David Petraeus. He became commanding general of the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, Louisiana, acted as deputy commander for the U.S. Army in the Middle East, and finally deputy chief of staff, strategic plans and policy for NATO's Allied Command transformation. Retiring from the military in 2019 as a major general General Hickman is now senior advisor at compass executives group assisting businesses in crisis management strategic planning and decision making coaching and leader development and supply chain management joining me today is my co-host historian and Columbia State professor dr Barry Goodcomb. good morning dr Goodcomb.
2: good morning Tom
1: together we are honored to be joined by General William Hickman General Hickman welcome to History's hook
3: it's great to be here thank you for inviting me Tom
1: you were born and raised in Murray County you have traveled the world you've amassed an astonishing amount amount of life experience what does murray county and middle tennessee mean to you now
3: well murray county was a great place to uh grow up it's a uh, the people here is what i really enjoyed the most and I, it was really the the first united methodist church right down the street from here right almost right across the street where we are today uh really had a great uh, environment for young people to be part of the community and then without the uh, troop 114 the scout troop there i can never uh talk too much about that troop and uh and I, and I want to just start at the beginning. Talked about Mr. Bill Dennis. Mr. Dennis was an incredible man who just gave so much of his time, and his wife did, and family did, to our Scouts, and uh, many of us uh, benefited from his dedication to the Scout program here. So that's that. Uh, the church, the Scouts, the uh, opportunities in schools, the sporting events, things like that. I mean, county really provided a lot of opportunities to get out and really become uh, develop your leadership skills and just your appreciation for being around people.
1: What school did you attend?
3: Well, I uh, started in seventh grade. I went to Columbia Military Academy, and so uh, and then stayed in that through the eleventh grade. Was Columbia Military Academy, and then my l- last year there, it reverted to Columbia Academy, and then the year after that, the church took over and is doing a great job today. Just keep Columbia Academy going strong.
1: Have you always had an interest from the time you were a kid in military?
3: Well, I think that somewhat. Yes, I uh, enjoyed Columbia Military Academy. I enjoyed the uh, parts of that—the discipline part, the uh, military part, and the education part. But I think scouting had more to do with it. Uh, scouts is about service and leadership and not the scouts uh, directs you to the military but it does uh, allow you to appreciate your nation the country the United States and really the values our country has and that kind of uh, translates easily over to the military and so when, when I was in high school I decided to uh, apply for an ROTC scholarship which I which I got which allowed me to go to school at, at the university I could get admitted to and then join the army and, and I joined the army uh, thinking I was staying five years or until as long as I enjoyed it and so I ended up 36 years, enjoyed every year of it.
1: <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Let's talk about your home life a little bit. Um, your dad is kind of famous, uh, certainly in, in our community and, and, and even beyond, certainly. What, what was your home life like growing up?
3: Well, we had a great family. My uh, father, Wayman Hickman's, I'm going to go visit him right after this interview. He's, uh, he was dedicated to community services, the bank, uh, First Farmers Bank says. He spent a lot of his time, not just at the bank, though, with, but with the hospital, the community college here at Columbia State, uh, with scouting program with the University of Tennessee and many, many, Many other organizations out there, so he really gave his all for this community, for Murray County, Middle Tennessee, and, and, the, and the state as a whole. And then uh my mother, Carrie Hickman, who's from Columbia. Her father I never met; he passed away before my wife, before my uh, father and mother got uh, married. But Dr. Busby was a uh, doctor here in town, and, and uh, so it, she she really enjoyed and really uh, thought Murray County, and really Columbia, was very special. We had a really great time, and of course, uh, two brothers and sisters, and we all enjoyed living growing up here in Murray County.
1: Where are you in the lineup of children?
3: I have one. Older brother who also served in the army for twenty two years, uh, Logan, and then uh, my younger sisters Nancy and the younger brother John.
1: Uh, what rank did Logan?
3: Achieve? He, he was a lieutenant colonel. He got out twenty two years, and because he there's a advantage doing that because you get to spend more time with your family. And he's got two great uh, uh, young men now, his sons that are uh, UT graduates, are, and so he, he gets great but times he, with his family. He's older, yes. yet, yet you outrank him, so well, that must be fun around <laughs> the Thanksgiving it's, it's table, fine. right? Yeah, we all we had a great time together. <laughs> um,
1: So you decided to go to, uh, after graduation from from Columbia Academy, decided to go to Vanderbilt. Uh, What did you want to study there?
3: Well, I ended up going in business administration because, you know, my dad being banking, I thought someday I would go into some type of business, but uh, but it is all about leadership. It is all uh, business administration includes that, and just uh, wise use your resources. So that's the uh, major I selected at the time, and it also helped prepare me to get into the Army.
1: So you, you envisioned at this point uh, going to college, and then the the plan was the military just following following college then.
3: Yeah. Yeah, with the scholarship, you had a four-year commitment. So uh, yeah, I graduated on a Friday afternoon, and uh, Saturday morning, I was at Fort Benning, or Saturday afternoon. I uh, was at Fort Benning, Georgia starting work.
1: Um, you were a second lieutenant yes. going into the to the Army. What did you want to do in the military?
3: Well, I went into the infantry, infantry uh, which is uh, one of the combat arms. So I wanted to lead, uh, at the time, it was just uh, young men. Uh, today we've changed, the Army's changed, and now there are women in the infantry, which is fantastic. But I wanted to lead those young men in, uh, in all the challenges our nation was facing. And, of course, this was in 1983. We were still in the Cold War, and so I wanted to uh, do my part for, at the smallest unit level to lead our soldiers to be prepared to deploy uh, when necessary
1: so fort benning for uh officer training
3: yes uh infantry officer basic course how to be an infantry officer how to lead and then uh, went to ranger school after that which is one of the uh, toughest schools the army has but it's a premier uh, leadership course also and then off to fort bragg North carolina to 82nd airborne division after that
1: to so the 82nd um at, at this point in time you graduated if i remember correctly in 1983 the cold war is coming to an end you're a junior officer in a peacetime mm-hmm. army uh that, that makes it kind of hard. I, I know in, in my own studies, uh, officers often lament the fact that there are no wars. Uh, you don't have many opportunities to uh, in, increase your rank during that time. What was the Army like in, in the 1980s for you? Well, you
3: know, uh, 1983, uh, 1982 is when President Reagan came in, 1983. Uh, so we were reforming the Army. Uh, the Army tr- transformed uh, tremendously. This is really important. Uh, you know, 1974 is when the volunteer Army started. 1972 is when the uh, last draft, and then the law went out in 1974. So the Army changed. It really had four or five key points. Uh, it transformed. from a, uh, our, our Vietnam veterans served honorably, but it was a drafty Army as we had fought many of our wars in the past, uh, almost all of our wars, really. Uh, so we were going to change the dynamic of the Army and the military. So it became an all-volunteer Army. We, uh, we changed the non-commissioned officer corps, the sergeants. They, they developed an uh, education system that rivaled the officer education system for our non-commissioned officers because we realized how important that was. We also changed the, uh, we built these training centers, one in California and one in uh, Louisiana. And uh, these training centers rival combat. You know, fortunately, no one gets shot at these training centers uh, as real combat. But everything else is just as difficult or even at times more difficult than real combat. And then we brought in these after-action reviews, these uh, really candid reviews of how these fights, how these mock battles, uh, these uh, training events occur. and made them very difficult. And you were expected they they increased the complexity of the training so hard that it would, you would fail. And then from those failures, you would learn. And then we built a doctor, and we really focused on... Um, how to integrate the army and the air force together, air land battle doctrine, and all these things changed how the army operated from the armies coming out of the early, late early 70s to an army in the 1980s. And then we brought in new equipment along with that. We modernized the army, so that's the army I joined. Even though we had many many uh, veterans from Vietnam still serving when I came in, who were very excellent uh, officers and non commissioned officers, we we changed the army now into a uh, professional force. Uh, in, our, in to service of the American people, so that was a very exciting times to be in the army to see that change occur.
1: Interesting. So uh, you're posted with the 82nd Airborne First. Uh, describe what your day-to-day life was like there as well, a young officer.
3: Well, it's. Uh, About half the time you're in, we call Garrison, you're working out of your offices. So it's uh, up early in the morning, about 6, 6, 30, you're doing physical fitness, running exercises, uh, a lot of different uh, road marching, a lot of different events with your young soldiers. And you train throughout the day. And I say about 50%. The other times you're out in the field. You're out in the field for uh, several days at a time or two or three weeks at a time, training uh, in combat operations, whatever your mission may be. The infantry we're close with and destroy the enemy to be focused on those missions. And then the 82nd, you spend a lot of time in the 80s on uh, emergency deployment exercises. And so you would get calls, you would have to, within 18 hours, you had to have your uh, orga- if you're on this special alert status. Get your organ- organization called in, it could be a 4 o'clock on Saturday morning, whenever it occurs, you come in, you form up, and then you would deploy somewhere. So we did a lot of these events where we would do them at Fort Bragg just to save money, but times we would, we would uh, deploy to another state, or even off to, all the way to Puerto Rico one time on these emergency exercises, replicating what we would do if there was a crisis.
1: Right, this is cold war doctrine still yes uh, so uh, an attack is imminent you have to get troops mobilized in a hurry yes and so you're part of that right uh what's next for you after the 82nd Airborne? i'm i'm familiar with you with 101st so when does that
3: well i stayed there uh for uh, about uh, two two and a half years and then uh the battalion, this is very interesting because it only happened a few, two or three times. Our battalion, the entire battalion deployed to Vicenza, Italy in 1986. And so uh, in the battalion of Vicenza, Italy, there was an airborne battalion there, deploy, went to Fort Bragg. We changed places. And, and, and then they stabilized all the soldiers in the in the unit. So from 1986 to 1990, I was served in Vicenza, Italy with the airborne unit there. And uh, that's where I had my company command time. I made captain there. And, uh, again, this was still during the Cold War, so we, we did exercises along the— uh, northern dwarven- Italian border with Yugoslavia, and we did a lot. Took a couple of major exercises in Turkey, uh, about 50 miles from the Soviet Union, the the Soviet mm-hmm. border. And so these were de- demonstrating NATO's resolve uh, against the Soviets. And as you point, we did this with the Germans, the British, uh, Belgium, and other other nations also, and the Turks obviously.
1: So you're getting some good experience at this point that probably is going to serve you well later in your career uh, by having to interact with soldiers and officers and uh, local. Uh, folks in foreign countries,
3: right? Uh, you, you, the U.S. military never wants. We don't want to go by ourselves. We always want our friends, our allies, our coalition forces to go with us. It's much. You're much stronger when you bring in ideas and other cultures and other training from other units together. And that's what I learned at a young age. When we, especially when we would go to Turkey, because nor Italy, I understood we were stationed in Italy. But when we went to uh, Turkey, especially Eastern Turkey, uh, you we, working with the Turkish army again with the uh, the UK was there and the and the Germans and how to defend. North uh, NATO southern flank and really just demonstrate resolve, demonstrate our commitment to uh, NATO. And so it really was interesting to work within the Turkish culture there, as you moved across uh, Turkey and, and uh, driving and, and walking and using helicopters and whatever else how we got around.
1: Hmm. And you made captain uh, while you were there. Yes,
3: made captain was there. That's when I moved up to command a company, which is about 150 soldiers. And uh, so that was very interesting
1: too. And what unit at that point in time?
3: That was a 325th Airborne uh, Battalion Combat Team. It's uh, in Italy. There was one battalion of about 700 soldiers there, uh, they were airborne. So we we, right. we jumped out of planes, did our thing there. How
1: many jumps have you made?
3: I've made about 85 total in my career. Hmm. Um,
1: still peacetime army. Still yes. At this yep. point in time, we're, we're getting up into uh, the getting close to 1990. It's in 1990 that Iraq invades Kuwait. Yep. Uh, where were you when the Gulf War well, began? Well, in
3: 1990, I was in Italy, and I moved back to uh, Nashville. I got selected for a special program to get my master's degree. So in 1990, actually in August 1990, I uh, showed up at the one graduate school of management at Vanderbilt University for a two-year assignment there as a student. Uh, so very fortunate there. And so uh, I watched the uh, Gulf War on TV. How'd that feel? Well, I felt uh, like I was missing out a lot. But uh, in fact, we checked, we called, our, and they said no, they're not taking anybody out of graduate school. The you know the mission's gonna go on. You're gonna stay in graduate school and finish. So I finished school in 1992 uh, and missed the missed the. Go for
1: war. Missed miss the entire thing. That's yeah. fascinating to me that a person with the amount of experience that you had at this point, you had the better part of 20 years in, at that well, point, right? Well, no, that was 1992.
3: Uh, so, uh, 1991, 92 So, a little
1: so. over 10 years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and at that yeah, point, about, in time, almost 10 years. Yep. Huh? Yep. Yeah, yeah. um, but they, they kept you in grad school anyway.
3: It was a really interesting time. Uh, you know, it, this was down during the uh, drawdown of the military. Uh, you could not have. Uh, because Saddam could not have picked a worse time because there was a major drawdown going in in Europe. And so a lot of the forces did come from uh, the United States. But a lot of the forces that fought in uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and in southern Iraq came from Europe. And those forces were actually scheduled to come back to the United States already. Well, they just went to Saudi Arabia first and then back to the United States as, mm. they, as, the, as the drawdown was going as from the Cold War uh, peace dividend. And so uh, so the army was still very very large at the time.
1: Uh, what was your unit doing at the time? Did they did your unit deploy?
3: No, no, I was just assigned to school. Okay, I was in admin, administrative command, some up at Fort, uh, signed some unit at Fort Knox, but with duty at uh, Vanderbilt University. I got you. Yeah, so I wasn't really in a, I was not in a unit, uh, a combat unit.
1: What was next after
3: grad? What, what did you study in, in grad school? Well, I got my MBA. So I kept on the business uh, side of the house, but got my master's in business administration. And so uh, the idea was uh, the Army picked me this job to then go into a uh, a future job that required working with industry. And so that's what I did. I left uh, there and went back to Fort Benning, uh, which is the home of the infantry. I, wanted to, I figured I could stay with the infantry, even though I worked with combat development side of the house and uh, for infantry uh, weapon systems. is basically what I did uh, for about a year and a half. Uh, What
1: what does that mean exactly?
3: Well, we we ran, uh, we looked at uh, technologies that the military may want, and then we ran tests uh, at the local level with real soldiers. So with uh, using thermal weapon systems, for example. Thermal sites we see now where you can see it through smoke you see it at night. Um, a lot of, even civilians use these today. But we were, these are, this is all new technology. A lot of the ideas that came out of Desert Storm, because this is now 1992-93, as soon as we took those immediate ideas and we tried to put them into uh, f- future weapon systems for the Army. So uh, new new sites was one of them. Uh, or how we want to reconfigure our equipment based on lessons learned from uh, from the uh, Mr. Storm was another one of exams.
1: How long were you in grad school, just to step back grad, just a little grad bit? Grad
3: school was two years. Okay. Yeah, for two full years. Did you get great. to
1: spend time with your family? Here.
3: Yeah, that's why I wanted to come back to Middle Tennessee. So I lived in Nashville, but of course my, my parents still, lived in, uh, still live in Columbia, which is great. And so it was good just to be back home. When
1: did you meet your wife?
3: Uh, right after grad school, 1992. But I'd actually graduated, uh, and I came back for a football game because uh, at, uh, at Vanderbilt. And a friend of mine and my sister, a friend of my wife's and uh, my sister, introduced us, and we went to a football game together. So that's when we met. She was a student. She was a... Uh, a uh, critical care nurse at St. Thomas Hospital here in Nashville. Okay. And so we met and dated for about a year and a half, got married.
1: Well, we'll come back to your military in a second. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. It, knowing the end and, and how long you spent in the military, what was her take on your military career?
3: Well, I think she she really never thought she would meet somebody in the military. So, But uh, she really loved it. Uh, you know, we, we got married about a year and a half later, and uh, she moved to Fort Benning. Uh, at that time, I was assigned to the Ranger Regiment, which is we can talk about that for a minute. But the Ranger Regiment is uh, it's, it's more demands even the 82nd as far as deployments. But she quickly embraced the uh, culture and the really the families. She really enjoyed being around the families, and and she really enjoyed our even the moving so many times about 22 different houses for her uh, It's not easy. But uh, but when you get into a new every military community, uh, there's more the people there always embrace you and welcome you in their community. So we both enjoyed the lifestyle of being in the military.
1: So soldiers, uh, and rightfully so, get remembered for their service uh, throughout throughout the year. The wives and families often do not. So I wanted to make sure we we covered uh, covered her. I up. think it's harder you know,
3: on the families. Uh, we got uh, married in nineteen ninety four. And uh, she moved to Fort Benning about because she finished up her master's degree. She got a master's in nursing from Vanderbilt while we were dating, and then she moved. Decided to move to Fort Benning, with the, which I was glad. And, <laughs> and then about a month later, uh, we got alerted to go to Haiti. And uh, of course, this is before uh, cell phones and e- email and everything, so um, we couldn't tell our families where we were going. I just told her I was going to work. I don't know when I'm coming home. And of course, uh, about uh, three or four days later, it was on the news that the military is now. Uh, uh in Haiti. And so I was in Haiti for about thirty days I was deployed and uh, so it was a very interesting time. She really got her first look at what the military does and sometimes you just leave and you don't know when you're coming home.
1: Was that part of the when you were with the Ranger
3: Regiment? Yes. Uh-huh.
1: I- explain that to us. So uh, give us some background on the Ranger Regiment and uh what that training uh, entails.
3: Well the Ranger Regiment I was I was working in Fort Benning and Combat Developments and I interviewed for a job at the Ranger Regiment. In fact I had just a personnel job to help with their staff section and work personnel. because uh, it's just an amazing group of individuals. Uh, Everybody's incredibly dedicated, so it's a great opportunity. And then I worked my way up through a couple other. My time we went to Haiti, I was uh, working uh, civil affairs and uh, psychological operations-type planning, and I was a staff officer. Uh, and so we went to we went to Haiti. Now, we were on the aircraft carrier America, the uh, Ranger Regiment was, part of the Ranger Regiment was. Um, 10th Mountain Division was on another aircraft carrier. They took all the airplanes off the aircraft carriers and put the Army on these aircraft carriers, and we hmm. floated around Haiti. It was very interesting. But if you remember uh, Senator Nunn, and General Powell went to Haiti right before the invasion and talked Cedrus into giving up. He was the dictator. And uh, he ran off to somewhere in Central America somewhere. And so, which is good. Kind of kind of, peace broke out and it's before the war started, which is good because uh, someone would have been injured, obviously. But but the military the next day went in. Uh, so 10th Mountain went into the airfields there and uh, basically did the peacekeeping type enforcement. Uh, the Rangers stayed uh, on the aircraft carriers around the island for about 30 more days in, in case there was some uh, incident occurred. And the Special Forces teams went into the out. They put Outpost along Haiti, outside the big cities. So there were special forces unit, you know, the Green Berets, right. the Rangers on the aircraft carrier, providing the uh, immediate reaction force. And so we stayed out there for about thirty days. I got to go. I got to fly into Haiti a couple times for uh, reconnaissance missions. But because uh, the Haitian military didn't fight back, uh, they you didn't need the special forces to do that type of mission. Hmm. So we did it for about thirty days, and we came back to Fort Benning. Interesting. Yes.
1: Uh- so you spent the whole time on ship? You said you did some recon? Yeah,
3: we got to fly in for a few hours, a couple of times. The rest of the time, we were on ship with uh, different alerts for the uh, the combat force, different alerts uh, with helicopters there. It was very interesting to watch a uh, an aircraft carrier. This was the USS America, with again, with was just packed full of uh, special operations helicopters. And then uh, I was on staff now. Uh, okay. I, was, so I was a staff officer. But we also had some uh, companies there of rangers, the combat force, and just stay there prepared to go into Haiti if, if they were needed, if something occurred.
1: Explain to our listeners what it means to be a staff officer officer and how that differs from uh, from a field or combat officer?
3: Yeah, well, at the time I was, uh, I worked on the Ranger Regiment staff. This is uh, so I worked, uh, we worked the plans. Our, the staff as a whole would work, write the plans and then those plans would be passed down to the combat force for execution. And so we did uh, things from studying the environment, studying the culture, the complexity of, uh, of bringing the different combat units together, helicopters, artillery, uh, ground forces, you know, working with the Air Force to integrate their Uh, capabilities into the fight. You bring all that together at the plan level. That's what the staff does. And then then they pass that off to the combat force who goes out and executes it.
1: How many people generally in a staff command like that, how many people are making those kinds of decisions? Well,
3: we were on aircraft carrier. It cut down a little bit, but we had about 40 of us doing this. We had a colonel in charge. I was a a captain at the time. We had a colonel in charge and and, then the staff put this together.
1: Um, We're going to come back to this, but I'm always fascinated by the organization of the military and how it breaks down the work uh, so you can move thousands of troops. You can coordinate between ground forces and air forces and even naval forces if need be, as in the case with Haiti. Uh, And deal with budgets in the millions of dollars uh, at times. It's it's pretty incredible and daunting to think how much power a single person can wield as part of a much bigger operation. Pretty incredible.
3: It, it really is. And it's getting even more, uh, as we become more techni- technology uh, influenced. They have more, and individually have even more power based on that. So it, I'd love to talk about it. Uh,
1: so uh, make it back from Haiti. Were you able to tell your wife where you'd <laughs> been immediately after you came back? or is- No, they, they found
3: out pretty fast. Once you got in the news, I mean, they, they called the family Remember "Told them, okay, they're they in Haiti. We, we, there's not a secret out there. It was in sure. the news pretty within a 24 hours. It was the news. Sure, uh, we we deployed from Fort Benning over to Fort Stewart, uh, Georgia, where there's another Ranger unit there, and then we flew out to get on the helicopter. So that we get we got on the helicopter, flew out to get on the aircraft carrier. So that took a, de- a day or two, and then we we took the aircraft carrier down to Haiti. So that took another day or so. So during that time of, uh, there there wasn't any communication with the families. But then once it got down there, it got in the news, uh, uh, Senator Nunn, and I think they did a great job. They talked him into uh, giving up and leaving, unlike... nor and panama right, who right. ended up he's in a prison somewhere in the united states because he, he didn't give up
1: um on the flip side of that it's great that uh, combat didn't happen on the other hand what a great training exercise that was a real yeah. test of of the plan
3: right uh, it was it was brought all together again with the uh, army the navy and the air force all together and special operation forces all working together so it was it was that that part was what came next well after that i uh I went to uh, school. Uh, I got selected for the Commander General Staff College. When I was in the Ranger Regiment, I got I I promoted to major. Which is about uh, twelve years or so in the army, and so I went off to Fort Leavenworth, in Kansas, to the Command of Staff College in uh, from 1995 to 1996, and okay. so it's one about a ten-month course, and it's a great opportunity to really, really dive into uh, how the army operates. It kind of say the mid-level. You know, we're talking about battalions, brigades, divisions, and corps. The the operational fight from uh, units from about 500 soldiers up to you know 20 or 30 thousand, and how to maneuver those, and do the staff work, how to uh, things you just talked about, how you right. sink the logistics to move those type of forces around.
1: Okay, and then uh, what's next?
3: Well, that's when my Fort Campbell started, 101st. So in uh, uh, 1996, I got selected to go to Fort Campbell to be a battalion operations officer. So now I'm a battalion of about 500 soldiers, uh, the 502nd, 1st Battalion, 502nd uh, Infantry Regiment at Fort Campbell. And so uh, I I did that for two years, uh, from 1996 to 1998, and had a great time there doing that and uh, really serving up there and uh, really worked hard about and mastered my skills at infantry.
1: Okay. Um, You were there for, uh, that brings us up until about 1998. yes. And uh, what's next? Uh,
3: 1998, I left and I went to to Force Com, Forces Command Headquarters in uh, Fort McPherson in Atlanta. And so I got, this is really when you are you're really brought into high level staff. So we're working at a four star level command about all so all the forces in the United States, um, the active duty forces, and all the uh, responsible for training of the National Guard and the Reserve component also the reserves. And so that headquarters did that. So we worked that job. I was responsible for planning the uh, leading the team that planned the deployments of our forces outside of the United States. So at the time, Kosovo and Bosnia were very uh, hot at that time. So we did a lot. That was a big part of it. And then we did exercises too. When they left the United States, and so I worked there for about um, almost three years.
1: So this is that point in the career where I was talking about earlier, where you're you're experiencing kind of a big jump from battalion level command yeah. to helping yeah. sort of at a strategic level.
3: Yeah, that yeah yes. From '96, uh, '97, 90, I was the operations officer, and executive officer for battalion. Then the Army put you back over into higher level uh, experiences, and then and then then in 2001, I went back to being a battalion commander so if that I hope I'm not confusing everybody here but so you learn uh, battalion level operations you get some uh, experience with high level commands and then you and you're brought back down what, to battalion what's the thinking behind
1: that why are they taking you from battalion level to giving you experience on a on a much bigger you need, scale you
3: need to understand the big picture because so you understand your part in the, when you become a commander at the lower level battalion 500 soldiers you need to understand the big picture How what it means how do you move large armies around whether they are just a few thousand or you know desert stormers 500,000 how do you move these armies around and so your part to keep that flow going and so that's the idea behind it and then so in 2001 i went back in may of 2001 i went back for campbell
1: okay let's take our first break when we come back we're going to continue our conversation with general william hickman we'll be back right after these messages
0: don't go away history's hook with your host tom price will be right back after this brief commercial break alert alert History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
2: General Hickman, you uh, uh, talked about uh, a few moments ago, you mentioned the peace dividend uh, as a result of the into the Cold War, you talked about Haiti and Kosovo. Of course, for more than 40 years, the strategic focus of the military had been on containing the Soviets, containing Soviet communism. Uh, how did the basic strategy or focus of the military change when the Cold War came to an end?
3: Uh, thanks, Barry. The, oh, I'll speak a little bit from my experiences, but the military as a whole, too. The, they did, it did change. We were looking around and, and, and saying, okay, what's our mission now besides this defense of the nation? And so if you looked through the uh the list of uh, the cold war events i mean there was grenada panama haiti somalia and uh some of these some of these occurred um before, as the Cold War was going on, some as, as soon as it ended. So there were still these smaller uh, deployments and, and interventions by the U.S. military based on our political leaders. But, and then also in the 1990s, if you think about it, they, uh, NATO went from collective defense to cooperative security. Uh, if, if you remember, uh, soon after the Cold War was over with, the Eastern Storm was over with, and then the march across Eastern Europe, and I, and I mean that peace, a peaceful march, as Eastern European nations wanted to join NATO. It was really amazing times, uh, as our two as Russia and the United States uh, worked out this, with really with NATO being the the strength at the time. Many of these nations joined, so that changed the army that was in the Europe in Europe. Their fo- their focus now was. Cooperative secure- security, bringing in these NATO nations, doing training exercises with them, trying to inter- uh, introduce our, the doctrine of, of NATO of Western Europe and the United States to them, and also encouraging encouraging these nations to uh, use inno- innovate their forces, to improve their forces, modernize their forces to NATO standard as they came in there. And along with that, um, along with that, that's the military side, the political side, and the is, is bringing those nations up to the standard of democracy that they can be part of NATO. But uh, but they really, my focus it did. It, we were in the 19th 1990s, we were in a very uh, focused, just training environment. I mean, we weren't. Uh, the Cold War was over with, so what it was going to be next? I think our nation was asking that. Uh, other nations were, and and so at the time, we could we could take a peace dividend. If you look at it back recently, I read about when President Clinton was the uh, president. The defense budget was about 340 billion dollars. Today, it's over 650 to 700 billion dollars. It was an opportunity to uh, bring the military down a little bit and uh, save those resources for other parts of the nation. And so we. I'll realize that at the time. And so what you do at my level, I was still at the junior level, you just focus on your unit, making it the best, highest range possible, given the resources you have.
1: How? What is the thought process uh, of uh, an officer in the military when you have a drawdown like that? How, how does that affect morale? And, and do you see this from a political standpoint between a Democratic administration and a Republican administration? How, how much does that affect morale in the military when you see changes like that?
3: It, it does. Uh, when you have a drawdown, when you've had one down during sequestration. Uh, we'll get into that later on, but the, you know that's more recent uh, with the uh, when President Obama's administration, as the military was drawn down. It, it affects the individuals. That's when you have to look in the eye. I mean, I have many uh senior NCOs and officers who are at you know the 12, 15 years in the military. They've committed themselves and their families to this lifestyle, this commitment, their service to the nation. And then you bring them in the, in the office and say, "I'm sorry, uh, we're 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 getting smaller. And uh, as much as you want to, the military cannot use your services anymore." And so they're are programs to help ease people out uh, back in the system to join the civilian world. But it's very difficult when you have someone who believes that they're on the path to at least serve 20 years and then tell them, no, I'm sorry, we don't need you anymore. And that does affect morale. It affects uh, all all the soldiers across the, the force.
1: To stay on the political side of things for a moment, these smaller actions, for lack of a better term, Kosovo, Somalia, uh, even Haiti, uh, those those types of actions, from a political standpoint, how do how do soldiers respond to to those? What what if you don't agree with an administration's policy and in going into a place like Somalia, for instance?
3: Well, that's why it's an all volunteer force, and so you you don't have a uh, political opinion. Uh, at least you don't express it openly. I mean, this this is our responsibility to support, and defend the Constitution of the United States, and follow the officers appointed over us, including the President of the United States, as commander in chief. So you follow those orders, and you. Uh, you count on the American people to help uh, guide the nation. And so uh, there's one good point I didn't point out at the, uh, when we talked about how the Army transformed. And, the, uh, and, and really, the people didn't understand it. So as we came out of Vietnam, the senior military leaders at the time pushed a large majority of the logistics forces out of the active Army into the National Guard. Now, Tennessee still has a brigade. We still have a, a combat brigade. So there are combat units in the National Guard, but a very large majority of the logistics and the combat support are not in the active Army. So the Army cannot go to war without the National Guard, which is huge. In the Cold War, the National Guard's number one mission was Strategic Reserve. The National Guard was not going to be deployed unless there was a World War Three. They were not going to do these small missions. What we saw when we went in Iraq and Afghanistan, the National Guard went with this, And the idea was in the 70s, if the National Guard goes, the American people go. Mm. So, Columbia went to, to war. Murfreesboro, you know, Franklin. It's not Fort Campbell. Because Fort Campbell, those soldiers are from all over the country, right? But the c- soldiers in Columbia are from Columbia. And so, when they go to war, Columbia goes with them. And so, that was the idea. You bring the American people with you. And so, therefore, maybe you make a better decision to go or not. And the American people, okay, okay. This is not just some professional force. This is everybody. These are our sons and daughters. They're going. Right. So, uh, I think that's very important if we go. I know it kind of got off track there, but I think that's important.
1: Absolutely. September 11th was one of the greatest turning points in our nation's history. Where were you, and what did it mean as a military officer with, at this point, nearly two decades of experience under your belt?
3: Well, uh, September 11, 2001, I was at Fort Campbell. Now It was my first, uh, second assignment there. I was a battalion commander. I commanded 500 troops thereabouts, and uh, we were getting ready to go to the field. And we got a, we turned on the television. Uh, we were going to go out for a week's training, and uh, we saw the attack on the. Uh, World Trade Center and uh, the Pentagon and then the uh, so Fort Campbell locked down so we were assigned my battalion got orders within an hour or so to go to the airfield because there's a lot of helicopters there and we guarded the airfield for uh, several weeks and we also had a mission in southern Indiana there was a there was a, a facility that was taking uh, nerve agent, chemical weapons from the old Soviet uh, treaties we had from years ago to uh, dismantle and destroy all of our chemical weapons. So there's actually a facility in southern Indiana that was doing this, and so we got on helicopters very quickly within the first uh, th- two or three days and sent soldiers up there to guard that facility because that was another high, high high value target that possibly a terrorist organization would want to hit. So we did that for the first uh, few weeks until things quieted down. We realized that uh, there were not other any attacks the nation.
1: What was the mindset of your unit at that point in time?
3: Well, the mindset was, was the nation. That, uh, what is going to happen next? It's something uh, the is going to go to some type of war, some type of conflict it's going to occur here and it quickly resolve itself to Afghanistan. Were you ready to go? Yes, we were. Uh, I did not deploy, but there were forces from Fort Campbell that deployed within the first, well, there are a lot of special forces, special operation forces from Fort Campbell that went to Afghanistan and then following that, I was in the 101st. The conventional army followed into Afghanistan also. So we had the forces from Fort Campbell, helicopter units units and infantry units that went in there.
1: So when did you deploy?
3: Well, the first deployment I had was in uh, March 2003, so Iraq. So we got the award in uh, late January that the division was going to deploy to Kuwait and prepare for combat operations in Iraq.
1: About 130,000 troops, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, are there for the invasion of Iraq uh, with a threefold agenda from a political standpoint to disarm uh, Iraq's weapons of mass destruction to remove Saddam Hussein's control over the region and to free the Iraqi people. What was your mindset when you're hearing things like weapons of mass destruction and the controversy that came came about as a result of that?
3: Well, we had, we were there to do our mission. So we were the 101st, John Petraeus was the division commander, I was a battalion commander, and we went in and did our task, whatever whatever mission we gave the initial first few days we thought there was a very good chance they would use chemical weapons so we uh we wore all of our chemical gear which is very interesting in the in uh in april it's getting pretty hot there and uh we quickly realized that wasn't going to happen and we took that off in a few days and then we went up through uh southern from kuwait uh all the way through southern iraq into baghdad my unit went out into western iraq and then we ended up in mosul and so uh, some very interesting times there um I think we, uh, I think the military did well, but I, th- I think there were a lot of uh, bad decisions were also made that got us into a fight that we, weren't, we didn't understand.
1: Talk about that a little bit more. Talk, talk about combat experience for the first time. You get into Iraq. What are, what are your impressions? What are your memories uh, about going in-country for the first time?
3: Well, it's important to, uh, as, a, as a leader to set your unit up for success. We always do that. We do it in training. It's harder to do in, in combat because you, you don't control the environment. So we went into Iraq. This is an environment we can't control I mean, we because uh, there's people. There are people we don't understand, and they don't understand us. And so I think the biggest lesson I learned initially is uh, if you're going to move your unit into a, a city, think about all the risks that ca- occur to that unit and how to mitigate those risks to your unit but also mitigate the risks to the people. So you accomplish a mission with uh, as little risk as possible to the local population because we, we believed that we were going as an army of liberation, not a, not as an invasion. And if you're an army of liberation, and you can argue that, that's what we believe at the time, therefore we're there to support the people, not injure the people. And so that's a, the mindset we went in with.
1: Talk about the people. What, what were the Iraqi people like?
3: Well, initially, they were very uh, welcoming. And uh, you have to understand Iraq. I mean, southern Iraq, there's, there's Shia and Sunni Muslims in, in, primarily in, in Iraq. Southern Iraq are Shias. They have been uh, persecuted. They've been you know, uh, harmed against them by Saddam and the Sunnis for, for a very long time. So they were welcoming to get rid of the uh, Saddam and his militias and his special groups that would do these things. And then, when you, as you got further north, you got into the Sunni areas that were very pro-Saddam, pro because they they controlled the country, and so they were very, they were much more uh, against what the U.S. was trying to do. And so that's that's the, that's the war that when the civil war broke out by 2005, that's what was happening. Those two groups fighting each other with the U.S. military in the middle of it.
1: Um, describe day-to-day operations for you when you deploy there.
3: Well, the we, initially the part was we would uh, we would move on the uh, from the south to the north into Baghdad on the eastern uh, side of the Tigris River was the Marine Corps a division moving north toward Baghdad on the western side of the Tigris River was Third Infantry Division. They, both these divisions had tanks that were moving very quickly up north and uh, armored armored vehicles, and we followed behind the Third Infantry Division because we had 101st as helicopters, and so we were able to keep up. And Third uh, Infantry Division would go fight and then they would bypass a major city and then we would come in behind them. So my battalion we we secured uh, Najaf, which is one of the major uh, cities in southern Iraq. We had the northwest quadrant of that. We went into Karbala with our brigade, which is another city, and then we went into southwest Baghdad and we would go into the cities as light infantrymen without tanks primarily. We had a few tanks but attached to us. And we'd just clear out the area and look for who was left behind. And so that's what we did. We got into Baghdad. And then we went out and our division ended up in in Mosul, which is far north of uh, Iraq.
1: Describe combat.
3: Combat is, uh, I guess, its abilities to uh, control the situation and build, take in information as quickly as possible, make a decision as quickly as possible. So it was a, uh, our unit faced it a couple of times. I mean, it's different times. Sometimes you'll just go days without anything happening. Other times you'll get into a firefight with our, our battalion, with, uh, with, the, with the enemy, and at that time, basically our soldiers would go into their um uh, they're what they learn. their their skills. It's kind of like playing basketball. as You're going down the down the court. You just kind of use your instincts that you learn. Basically, they're not instincts. They're just from practice. Going over this, the same place. Yeah, muscle dream. memory. That's the term I'm thinking about. Over and over again. So the same thing. So we had one. We had one great NCO, Staff Sergeant Wolf. Uh, I knew him for many years. He was uh, he was a, he received the uh, from his gallantry. He received the Silver Star. Silver Star um, initially against the uh, Republican Guard outpost. But he he led four or five troops. They cleared a uh, trench line and. And, uh, re- talking to him and reading, his, uh, and reading about the incident. He just took the closest four or five soldiers he had and they went through the battle drill, the muscle memory, how to do this and, uh, and did extremely well. So that's basically how it happens. is You just you take what you've learned, what you practiced and uh, you, you implement it in the environment you're in.
1: And at this point you're commanding about how many troops? About 500 soldiers. About 500. Yes. And where are you in relationship to the troops? Where, are you in a headquarters?
3: No, no, we were moving, uh, moving along. Uh, yeah, so as we went in uh, Najaf and uh, Karbala. Uh, I was. I would go up with the lead company, and we would. if we walked in, and we. And I would basically be with the lead company commander, and we were bound. We were bounding forward as we went through the city.
1: So you're in combat yourself.
3: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You want to. You have to get up front here to see what's going on, but especially in the cities. You can, I mean, if you're in the big desert, you can see long distances, and all your sensors are working, your, uh, your intelligence platforms. But once you get inside the cities, these cities are uh, several hundred thousand people. You, you have to move. I move forward, and then I have my deputy toward a little bit further back, maybe 500 meters behind me, with the radios, so I can talk. Him, and then he could talk to outside the battalion, to bring in our support we needed.
1: About how long of a period of time are you in the field and engaging the enemy in this way?
3: Well, each one of these were uh, just they lasted a day. So we'd go in the day, we'd we'd get it cleared, and then you'd stay in the cities for seven more days doing patrolling and things like that. And then we bounced the, when we move on to the next city. And so we did that. Uh, this just you know the initial invasion of Iraq, the uh, liberation here only took uh, three or four weeks. I forgot we the timeline, but basically we went we went pretty fast up to Baghdad, and then we moved on up to Mosul. And then we were in Mosul. We were there for the rest of the year. We were there most of for a year.
1: What was the toughest fight you were in?
3: I think the, uh, just the initial part, I mean, uh, I was not, I mean, I never fired my weapon. I, I was with my companies, and they would get into fights, but, uh, I mean, as I was leading. I mean, I always told myself, if I'm the one shooting my weapon, we're in trouble. Uh, I was there trying to synchronize the fight of our guys. But it was in, uh, I think, in Najaf, and then uh, we had some later in a, in a future deployment. Probably the worst was during the fighting the militias in 2008, which was probably the worst fight.
1: Did you lose men under your command?
3: We did, and so that's the, the sad part and the tragic part of this. What was next? Well, we did, uh, I led the battalion into the initial uh, movement into Baghdad, and then that was in April of uh, March, April of 2003. June 2003, actually, I got uh, pulled up to the division. And so I now moved up to the 101st Division Headquarters, which is in Mosul. And I was the uh, Division Operations Officer, the G3, for the division. And so Jim Petraeus was now the division commander, and I came up and worked for him for the rest of the year. And so we stayed in. Uh, we conducted operations in Mosul, but all of northern Iraq, to include Nineveh Province and all the Kurdish zone of uh, northern Iraq. And we did, the division did that for until um, February of 2004, and I came home. We all deployed back to Fort Campbell, and then uh, went off to the War College for a year.
1: Okay, that's what my question was going to be. What did you do after your after yeah. your tour was over? So. We came
3: we came back uh, February two thousand four, and by July two thousand four, I uh, went to uh, Newport, Rhode Island, to. Uh, the Naval War College, so I got picked, up which is very interesting. Go with the Navy, uh, right? Which,
1: What's the why? Uh,
3: why? Well, well, we wanted to do something different. I asked my wife, maybe, where do we want to go, and so we decided let's go. Let's apply for it. You had to get selected and go with the Navy, and it's, it's just a beautiful part of the country too. Uh, but it was really interesting because it was you know it was the Navy, but it was uh, the the Marines were there, Air force and the Army had people there also, and it was it was a great year of just uh, intense studying. They have a really good academic program there, but also just having the weekends off and nights off and your holidays off, you go out and for northeast part of the nation, which is something we, being from Tennessee, we've not done before.
1: Sure. What what did you learn there? What's the purpose of that school?
3: Well, this is about, it was about strategy and uh, really the whole government approach. So the first uh, four or five months were just studying how our government operates, the military with the State Department and other uh, federal agencies and and, and, uh, departments, and how those all come together to uh, focus on the national interest of our nation in a region, and then how you would take that interest and write a a high-level military plan to support that. And so that was the first part. The middle part, you study a lot of history really it's all history it's uh, how uh, different uh, nations fought over the years and the effects of their wars on their nation and so and then the last part you get then you get back down into uh, joint uh, training and joint planning so how the joint force the Army Navy Air Force and the Marine Corps work together for operations and they do that right before you go back to the back to your next job
1: so this is very high level yes thing. very, so, very high level. so officers who are selected for this, are really being looked at for higher command?
3: Yes. Yeah, you expect you're, you're you have the potential to continue on servicing at higher levels. What was
1: your rank at this point?
3: Uh, I made colonel while I was there. Yeah, actually, I actually was right as I ended up. Okay. Yeah,
1: uh, and then you deployed again. Yes,
3: yeah, so I got selected for to be a brigade commander now. So uh, that's the next level up while I was in the school. And so I came back to Fort Campbell and uh, commanded Second Brigade of the Hundred First. I showed up in October of uh, two thousand and six. I get these dates right uh, thereabouts, and maybe uh, that, that fall. But that a brigade at Fort Campbell has about 3,500 soldiers, maybe 3,000 soldiers. Uh, we deployed, we end up with about 5,000. In October 2007, we deployed to Iraq, and we're there for about 14 months. And so we had our our brigade from the 101st deployed, and then we got units from other. Uh, Units from different places Joined us We ended up with About 5,000 of us In the second part Of the surge In Iraq And we were responsible For Northwest Baghdad So we were back On the streets of Baghdad Every day And we, we Really Really interesting and We um, This was in the surge Where John Petraeus was there And we, uh, we We focused on the people It's really interesting now, If you're going to provide It's like A uh, uh, I know I'm getting a little off here. The police here in our states, you, you know where the people are. So go be nice and find the people and serve the people. And if you do that, then they'll help you find the uh, least in, in, uh, overseas. I'm, I don't, I'm not a police officer. I don't understand here. But if in Baghdad, if we helped serve the people, then the, the people would help us find the insurgents. And so we provide security with the Iraqi army and Iraqi police, not by ourselves. And then they helped us find the criminals and in the insurgents in the, in the area.
1: So uh, commanding a brigade again, 5,000 troops. Yes. So that's a big jump from what you had commanded in the field. Right. prior to this. Describe the assets that you are in command of at this point. Not just men, but material as well. Uh, describe describe the components of the unit that you're commanding.
3: Okay, so you have a... Uh yeah, about 5,000, there's about seven or eight brigade, battalion commanders now. So I had, as a colonel, I had, I worked through seven or eight lieutenant colonels, and then they commanded below them. So we went from, uh, we had about four uh, combat arms battalions, infantry or armor. And so within there, we had light infantry from uh, from the 101st. We had an armed battalion. We had actually two armor battalions. And some of those, they would go out in uh, vehicles, wheel vehicles. Sometimes we take the tanks in the cities. And then we also had a logistics battalion, our artillery battalion, and we coordinated our efforts with the aviation battalion and so we brought all those forces together.
1: You can bring a lot of firepower to bear. You
3: can and the goal is not to use it inside the city. So uh, but if you needed it at certain times when the uh, situation required we, we brought some tanks in the cities and helped quiet things down and we bring them back out when we didn't need them.
1: So to go back to the point that you were making a few minutes ago you have this power at your disposal but really one of your primary missions is to make these relationships with the people. Right. And that's sort of uh, General Pet- Petraeus's thought process as well from from what i've read uh he he was sort of a a master at, at this making these relationships within the community in order to further the mission of the military
3: yeah that's exactly right i've got to observe that in 2003 in mosul when he was doing it he was always doing this this is not what this is something he believed from the very beginning but when he was the four-star general in iraq he was able to implement it across the, the nation so for us we took that idea of, you know protect the people live with the people we had 19 we had northwest baghdad you know baghdad is basically split into four quadrants. Uh, the Tigris River goes right through the middle of back. And so we were on the west side of the town on the northwest quadrant. We had 19 security stations in the city, in that part. Our, they were either in Iraqi army barracks, Iraqi army police stations, or uh, somehow, somehow oh, abandoned homes and we would bring the Iraqi police with us. So we were all together, and, and they lived. Our troops lived there 24 hours a day every day for uh, 14 months. So they knew the neighborhoods. If, can you imagine if you were, uh, were across the street from the Memorial Building? If you lived in that building and you walked the streets of downtown Columbia every day and every night and talked to everybody, every store owner, you would know. You would get to know everybody in Columbia extremely well within your, with the parts you live. We did the same thing in Baghdad with these 19 security stations where our soldiers were out day and night with, with the Iraqi Army counterparts greeting and meeting the people. How did the people react? Well they they I thought it went very well because we weren't by ourselves. That was the point. I've said it about three times now. We were we would go on these joint patrols with the Iraqi army and so a lot of times you get a, uh, anything, we were kind of the neutral team. Remember, you know, the, the, the Americans in the room, everybody understands we're, we're not pulling from one side to the other. When you have uh, business leaders meeting together, or political leaders meeting together, the Iraqis, we were there just to assist with the process. And so uh, overall it worked very well, uh, and the violence level dropped tremendously from 2007
2: to 2008. General Hitman, uh, prior to uh this war in Iraq, how much training had you and the force had in urban warfare or urban pacification? Or were you learning a lot of this on the fly?
3: Yep. Yeah. we very little. Okay, so uh, Fort Campbell has an urban city, a mount city, but it's, it's very small, really, compared to Baghdad. And so uh, 2003, we had very little as, as we kept, you know, by the time I went back to 2008, this is my third tour in Iraq. So uh, we, we trained as much as we could because we understood what we're getting into. But uh, the Army was not very well prepared for this in 2003. Uh, we did not, un- we were focused on fighting battles in the desert or the, or the uh, forest of Louisiana. Uh, and, and so that's not what was happening. And, and so we were, uh, the military didn't do very well, honestly, uh, initially in the, in the war. And I think our military and other political decisions were not uh, focused on uh, past initial
2: invasion of Iraq but by 2008 you had adapted.
3: Yeah, uh, yes we had. 2006 uh, Joe Petraeus went to Fort Leavenworth as the commander there as a three star and rewrote the counterinsurgency manual. In fact, you can buy it on Amazon. It was uh, published. And that that took all the lessons learned from uh, Vietnam though and other uh other lessons learned from through history and brought them together and then it was sort of written for Iraq, but it wasn't specifically. But it brought all the ideas. This is about the people. This is not uh in fact, sometimes it's better not to uh, detain insurgent if you're going to make more enemies than friends when you do it and there are a lot of great ideas in this manual and so but he brought that in early 2007 when he came back to his iraq for i think his third tour also uh he knew all the political leaders at his level and he was able to bring these ideas down and they came through the the command uh, across iraq so now the army and the marine corps were doing these things together where you used to have pockets of excellence in years before but then you'd have pockets of um of uh, ineffective leadership. Now you had the nation, uh, the military working together more effectively. And this is what 2007 and 2008 turned the uh, turned Iraq with the surge. But the surge is, you know, it was it was people. It was about 40,000 more troops, primarily army, but some Marine Corps. But it was the ideas. It wasn't people. It was the ideas. Where it's about the Iraqi people, not about going and killing insurgents. I mean, you, you, don't, you deploy to Iraq, you don't want to kill anybody. You'd like to everybody just to get along. And so I told my soldiers, we're not here. We're here to help the Iraqi people, the Iraqi army, and Iraqi police. And the Iraqi army and Iraqi police are the ones that now need to go out and provide security for their people. Then we're successful. If we're the ones doing it, then we're not being successful.
1: By the time of the surge, the war had been going on for some time. There was a little war weariness happening, I think, in the country. Describe the background behind the surge, the thought process behind behind it.
3: The, uh, the idea was, it was about these the ideas, but the, uh, it was about uh, people also. So if you remember, President Bush uh, made the decision to go with the surge against many of his advisors. Uh, but it was a this, this transition. Uh, before that, the strategy was just transition the problem to the Iraqi army and Iraqi police, and then the uh, political, Iraqi political leaders just step back. And that that was not working. And so uh, the, the this new strategy was to go out, get out of the big bases into the neighborhoods across, well, I did in Baghdad, but across Iraq and the other cities and provide security up front. And you could do that with bringing in more troops. And so I think this this new strategy worked. Uh, We'll see. I mean, it worked in the uh, time period we were there. Uh, we can talk later if you want about uh, you know, after 2011 when we left. But while we were there, it was working. It's very expensive. Don't get me wrong. The American people had to commit to this. This is not easy work. This is uh, very expensive in the number of soldiers. Uh, expensive, uh, you know, the sacrifice of our young soldiers and Marines and, uh, and other and civilians too. Uh, and also expensive uh, you know, cost-wise.
1: You're listening to History's Hook. We're talking with General William Hickman. We'll be back right after these messages.
3: Don't go away. History's
0: Hook with your host Tom Price will be right back after this brief commercial break.
2: Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Our company, The Garbage Man Incorporated, has been advertising on WKRM and WKOM for many years now, and it's been great. Our route supervisor, Don, is now the most popular garbage
3: man in Murray County, and it's all thanks to our decision to advertise on WKOM and WKRM. If you have a business and want people to know about your business, then I highly recommend that you do your advertising on WKRM and WKOM.
0: I'm Columbia Kiwanis Club member Suzanne Ganzer.
1: The Kiwanis Club and Columbia Main Street are partnering to put on a fall fest with a chili cook-off downtown Saturday, September 30th from 3 to 7. Come enjoy the music, taste the chili, or enter the cook-off. Proceeds raised by the Kiwanis go to local kids' charities. For more information or to enter the cook-off, go to the Columbia Kiwanis Facebook page. Come to enjoy the food, kids' zone, and music at this family-friendly event. We hope to see
0: you there. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: We've been talking with General William Hickman about his 36-year career in the United States Army. He has graciously agreed to spend another hour with us, so our next episode will be a second part uh, to his extraordinary life. We'd like to thank our sponsor, ServPro, of Marie and Giles County for their continued support. Join us next week as we continue this conversation with General Hickman on History's Hook.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for A Journey Through Time. We always get the question, what is Caledonia? That's easy. We're a full financial services firm. Who is Caledonia? Well, that's a little more interesting. Monty has an economics background. Daisy and Perry come from the banking world. Gay is an accountant. And Thomas has science and business degrees. Blair was a small business owner. Finally, I'm Becky Price, and I have a background in education. Together, we make up Caledonian financial in historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated. Member of FINRA and SIPC. Automobile Keys is a local, family-owned and operated car key programming business. Whether you need a smart key, switchblade key, key fob, transponder key, or just a basic car key replacement, we're your best choice for affordable, programmable replacement keys in minutes. Give us a call at 615-878-9087 or visit our website at automobilekeys.com. You can email us at cody at automobilekeys.com. Automobile Keys is a proud sponsor of Whitthorn Middle School Football. Come by our van out front after the game and say hello. Go Tigers!